Well, good morning, Two Cities Church. Welcome, we're glad to have you here. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Caleb Dubik. I'm one of the pastors here at Two Cities. I'm excited for us to keep walking through the book of James together here this morning. We're getting closer to the end. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn or type to James chapter four. As you're turning there today, I was thinking about all of you guys this, this week as I was getting ready to preach and realized that there's two types of people in this room. You know, you guys love it when people divide the world in half into two types of people, but here's my attempt for you today. And so as I'm looking around the room, I see two types of people. There are planners and there are those who are not planners, all right? And so if you would just indulge me, raise your hand if you're the planning type of person in this room. All right, I see you. All right, not you. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. So, you know, so the planners in the room, you guys love the, the sense of control that you have when there's organization and structure in your life. You love calendars and to-do lists and spreadsheets. You're the type of person when you're applying for a job and you give someone your resume and it says you're proficient at Excel, you're probably not lying. That may be true. You know, and you're triggered when you hear people say things like, hey, I know you planned out this evening, but I had another idea. Or, you know, we'll, we'll just figure it out as we go along, all right? So those are the planners. Who are my non-planners in the room? All right, I see you. Man, you are what people love to call wingets because you just wing it. You love spontaneity. You know, you look at calendars and to-do lists like straight jackets and padded cells. You love mashing that maybe button on Evites because you love the sense of control that you have with freedom. And so, listen, I stand before you a man divided. I can relate with both of you. You know, there's a time in my life when I've been both. You know, the dividing line for me was 2012. Before 2012, I was a carefree young lad, didn't have much responsibility in the world, just did whatever I wanted, when I wanted. I was spont- you know, spontaneous. I thought people who loved calendars and to-do lists were a bunch of stiffs who didn't know how to live, all right? But then 2012 hit, and that's when the Lord changed and transformed me. You know, it was my conversion of sorts. When I became more dependent and desperate for organization and structure in my life, one of my best friends became the app called Things that helped me figure out for the last 10 years what I need to do and when I need to do it. My calendar, I started to plan out literally every minute of my day, blocking out times, so much so that one of our residents was looking at my calendar over my shoulder the other day and started getting heart palpitations because like, when do you sleep, right? Well, it's actually in that gray time box right there. That's, that's when I sleep. And so, you know, I, I can relate to both of you. And, and really, you know, whether you're a planner or a non-planner, you know, what it does is it impacts the way that we live our life. And what James is gonna be talking about in this passage here today is, how does faith impact your planning? How does faith impact, impact the way that you live your life? And so let, let's dive in and read, and you can start to see what I'm talking about here. It says, starting in verse 13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And so James is gonna talk to us. What's it look like to live out our lives and plan out? But we see that as we continue to read, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong in the way that people are doing this. And and what we're gonna ultimately see is James is gonna call out two massive sins in the life of his audience. And these are two massive sins that the people that he's talking to probably don't even notice. You see, there's such a thing as having 
such huge sins in our life that we don't notice them or see them. You might think, how is that possible? Well, I think a good picture of that is this phenomenon called nose blindness, all right? Nose blindness is when you have been enveloped in such a big smell for such a long time, you don't even notice it anymore. So one thing you don't know about me is I grew up on a pig farm in Illinois, all right? And growing up on a pig farm, day in and day out, you don't notice the smell of those pigs anymore. But when someone comes to your house and it's like, whoa, smells like pig, it's like, oh, I didn't notice. Thank you for telling me. Or maybe another picture of this was a friend of mine in college who was an RA. She had to have a sit-down conversation with a girl on, our, on her floor who had terrible BO, okay? And she had people on her floor coming to her and making complaints about this person. She had to sit down with this person and say, you have awful BO. Here's what a shower is. Here's what deodorant is, you know? But she was so enveloped in it for so long, she just didn't notice. And sometimes we can have that same kind of nose blindness when it comes to our sin. We can become, become sin blind to the sins that we're just so enveloped in, we don't even notice them anymore. And so we need people in our life like James to come in and point these things out because we need to see them. And listen, he's saying the two sins that he's gonna talk about are, are this. The first sin he's gonna talk about is the sin of hubris. The sin of hubris, another word for that is arrogance or conceitedness or vanity. The second sin he's gonna point out is the sin of omission, not doing what we ought to do. And the audience, and many of us, are, are blind to those sins in our lives. We may not notice them, but what James says is that God notices them because genuine faith should not be marked by hubris and omission. What he's gonna call his audience to and us to here today is genuine faith in your, mar- in your life should be marked more by humility than hubris and obedience rather than omission. And so that's where he's gonna take us today. And so let's, let's dive in with that first idea, starting in verse 13. Genuine faith cultivates humility, not hubris. Verse 13 says this, come now. And he's saying, this is important, listen up, lean in, you need to hear this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such, a town, such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. And so just a little historical background on this. You know, this is a time in the first century, there's a ton of booming business and economy in the world that James is in. All around the Mediterranean, there is a lot of business and commerce happening. And the Jews that he's talking to are very much a part of this. You know, they're, they're very involved in the business world. And so what they're doing is they are planning ahead for the business transaction and things that they're gonna be doing. And so we can relate to that in a number of ways, can we not? You know, no matter who you are, or where you're at in life, maybe you're in the business world and you're looking at, man, sales and projections. You're looking at where the market is moving and you're making plans based off of those for the future. Maybe you're in the medical world. You know, we have a lot of those people here and I hear about your life and you're planning decades out in advance, it seems like, because it's like, all right, where am I gonna go to school? And then I'm planning, man, where do I wanna do my residency? Where do I wanna do my fellowship? And then where am I gonna do my job after that? You are planning way out in advance. Or maybe you're a contractor and you're looking at, you know, getting estimates in and you're looking at the price of materials and you're looking at all these different things. You've got to plan out for that. Or even the stay-at-home mom, you're meal prepping and planning. You're planning play dates for your kids. You're trying to think through school for your kids. What do I do this year? What do I do in middle school? What do I do in high school? What do we need to do if we want them to go to college? 
we're planning out a lot in advance. And that's just one of the natural things that we need to be able to do in this modern world is to look ahead, right? And what we see, that's actually a good thing. The Bible commends planning. It's a helpful thing. In Proverbs chapter 21, it says, the plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance. And we all know this, right? You look at the people who are successful in the world and they are future-oriented, they're planning out. That's one of the top marks of someone who is statistically going to be succeeding. They're future-oriented, they're planners. And so the Bible's saying, this is a good thing. And so why is James harping on these people here in James 4? What's wrong with them planning ahead? Does James disagree with the logic that we see around us? Does he disagree with the other parts of scripture that say this is good? No. And so what is he getting at here? Well, we see, you know, he's talking about their planning in verse 13, but drop down to verse 16 with me. And here's what he says. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Here's what James is saying. He's saying the problem is not in your planning. The, the problem is in your posture. He's saying there's a problem in your boasting. There's a problem in your bragging. Because listen to the way that they're talking here in verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go. They don't say, hey, we might go, we hope to go, we desire to go. They don't say that. They say, we will go. And some of you might be like, man, he's just splitting hairs. Like, is he really getting on them for their use of like vocabulary here? No, that's not what he's doing. James is getting at their heart posture because arrogance is a posture of the heart. And when we have that in our heart, that's what we filter all of our lives through, is that lens of arrogance. You know, what we say here often is our actions flow out of our attitude. And so when you have an attitude of arrogance, it is going to impact everything that we say and do. And we may not feel like that's much of a big deal, but here's what God thinks about that. Look at the end of verse 13, it says, as it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is what? Evil. It's evil. We may not agree, you know? We may not think it's that big of a deal because arrogance in many ways in our world today has become one of those acceptable sins. It's one of the sins that we look at and we are quick to excuse or even celebrate sometimes. Think about some of the people in the world around us that we look up to. Man, I'll be willing to bet that often they have a characteristic of hubris or arrogance in their life. Think about some of these CEOs or business leaders in the world today who are killing it. Or maybe some of our favorite athletes that we love watching on the court or on the field. Maybe it's some of the influencers that we're following on social media or their blogs. Maybe it's doctors who are just running ahead in their medical field and they have this godlike complex. Maybe it's some of the politicians that we're excited about and voting for. Maybe it's even some of the pastors and ministry leaders that we are following. And when we see that arrogance, we're so quick to excuse it. It's like, man, it's just confidence. What's wrong with some confidence? What's wrong with a guy when he scores a goal pointing at his name on the back of his jersey and yelling, me, me? It's just confidence. Or maybe, man, it's what they used to get ahead. They'd be foolish not to do that. Or maybe they're just so good at what they do, it's like, we give them a pass. And they're just incredible. They've deserved it. And as soon as we start excusing it and even celebrating it, here's what happens. We begin to embody it in our lives as well. And here's what God is saying. Listen, 
your arrogance, he doesn't say all such boasting is acceptable. He doesn't say that. He says all such boasting is evil. God sees it as evil. He actually uses the same word to describe arrogance in the same way that he describes Satan, the evil one. Because arrogance is much more in line with the person of Satan than it is with the person of Jesus Christ. We need to be able to see that and recognize that. Why does God see it as such an evil thing? Well, here's what happens. When we are arrogant, often what happens that goes along with our arrogance is we are forgetting about God. Our arrogance, man, we forget about God. The sad reality is it's possible to believe in God, but forget about him. It's entirely possible to claim faith in God, but functionally live a life that is godless. And some of you are making decisions about your finances, your relationships, your family, your health, without ever once considering the will of God for that area of your life. Some of you are making major life decisions like God doesn't exist and yet you have the expectation that God is somehow obligated to bless, protect, and provide for your will and your plans even though you have not invited him into that. And here's what God's saying, that's not morally neutral, that's evil. Let me bring that down a little bit more to home for you. How about you go ahead and make some major life decisions without your spouse? You think he or she is gonna say, man, babe, thank you so much for doing that without a single thought to me. I appreciate that so much. No, they're gonna be cheesed, right? Why would we think that when we do that to God, our creator who knows all of our needs and provides for every one of our needs, why would he feel any different? How do you love being forgotten and ignored? Man, think about that on a cosmic scale now. How does God feel about us forgetting about him? Actually, when we look at the Old Testament, one of the things that the Lord keeps coming back to over and over and over again in the lives of his people are them forgetting about him. They're constantly forgetting about him. Here's what he says to his people. In Deuteronomy chapter six, it says, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, in houses full of all good things that you did not fill, in cisterns that you did not dig, in vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And those verses should hit some of us right between the eyes because how many of us completely forget about God in the good and easy seasons of our life when he was the one who brought us there in the first place? Forgetting about God is evil. And some of you may be thinking, I don't forget about God. Okay, fair enough. Maybe you don't forget him entirely, but maybe you're compartmentalizing him into just certain areas of your life. You know, maybe you don't forget him, but here's what it looks like for you. It's like, man, God, you have a say in what I do with my Sundays and my community group night, but the rest of it's mine. Well, maybe two Sundays a month or maybe community group if I feel like it, right? We all forget about God in so many ways, do we not? And that's why it's evil to God. In arrogance, we forget him, but also at the heart of it, here's what happens. At the heart of it, we are assuming God's place in our lives. Many of us are functionally say, God, I don't need you. I've got this. I am the Lord of my life. 
And instead of seeing yourself as a minor character in the big narrative of history where God is the main character and we're just a tiny little sliver of it, we treat our lives like it's a story all about us where we are the writer, director, producer, and top build actor in a story all about me that frankly is going straight to DVD, all right? No one cares. No one cares. Like we are so arrogant into thinking that it is all about us Man, what could be more offensive than God's arrogant creation presuming his place in our lives? And here's the thing that James says is comically, we have nothing to be arrogant about, all right? We make terrible gods. And he's just gonna show us two ways that this is true right here in this passage. The first thing that we see is, listen, your life is uncertain. Look in verse 14, it says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So many of us think that, we know what's going on, but if we're honest, we don't have a clue. We have no clue what tomorrow is going to bring. How many of you, the last couple of years, did not have your life go according to plan? Anyone? Yeah, all right. How many of you guys, when 2020 began, sat down with your calendar and planned out the year and said, you know what? I'm just gonna make a little room for a global pandemic. I figure it's coming, maybe sometime around March, I'll you know, kind of work that in. How many of you, when you started working on your budget at the beginning of the year, looked ahead and started making margin for $6 gas and $43 eggs, right? <laughs> None of us, because it's like, man, we, we think we're in control, but we have no control over it. We have these big curveballs that come at us in life. We have small ones too. It's like, he talks about tomorrow, but if we're honest, we don't even know what today is holding. One of the things I love to do is in the morning, I sit down and I work out my calendar and I work out my to-do list and so beautiful. It's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill it today. But as soon as I get into the office, I've got 12 people coming to me and they're like, hey, Caleb, we need this. Or I get calls on the phone that I wasn't expecting. Or Pastor Dave's like, hey, we need a meeting. I'm like, ah! And I leave the office with a list longer than I came in with. I didn't get anything done. It's like, dude, that's our lives. We have no clue what today will bring. Or there's seasons of life, we just have no idea. One of my favorite things in life is smugly listening to couples who are about to enter into a new phase of life, telling me that they know exactly what's gonna happen. We're sitting at, with a couple in premarital counseling, and they're like, oh, we just can't wait to be married because we're gonna do this and this and our life is gonna be this way. And I'm like, ha, <laughs> okay. How about you take those things and you just rip it up because that's not how it's gonna go. Or these, these couples who are getting ready to have kids. And these are the same couples that tell you how to parent your kids when they've never had kids before, all right? And they're like, oh, we're gonna do this with our kids and it's gonna be beautiful. And it's like, you have no idea. You're gonna be in kid prison for the next 10 years, right? Like, we do not know. We have no clue. And so Christians who get this, Christians make their plans in pencil because we realize, man, we have no clue what tomorrow or even today is going to bring. Life is uncertain. We also know life has brevity. We see that our time here is short. You know, you and I, we functionally live like we and everyone we know is going to live forever. Do we not? We live with that mentality, but here's what James says in chapter 14. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're mist, we're here and then gone. Some of us like to think that we're maybe a mist like that fog that just rolls over the ground for hours at a time. That's not what he's talking about. You know, in places that are cold, not North Carolina, 
places like Chicago, where I'm from, you know, when you walk outside, here's how you know it's cold. First of all, your snot freezes in your nose. That's a really cold day, all right? But here's another indicator that it's cold. You take a puff of breath and you see it, and then it's gone. That's what James is talking about. You are that kind of mist. You are here, and then you were gone, and then you're forgotten. Let me put some flesh on this. How many of you know the first name of your great-grandfather? You got four of those. Hopefully you can get one of them. Anybody? All right, not many of us can say that. Because you know what? He was around not many decades ago, and he is already largely forgotten. That's how fleeting our life is. Someday, not too far from now, our own families are not even gonna remember who we are. That's how fleeting our lives is. We are here and then we are gone. We see that with celebrities. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how rich or famous you are. Steve Jobs, he was 56 years old when he died. He had just released the iPad. Years ago, I read his biography and I remember getting at the end of it, it's like, how did this guy not figure it out? Like, he's dying at 56. He's got all the money of the world. He's this great innovator. How is he not somehow making it? Because this is true for every single one of us. We are here, and then we're gone. And not only that, we're forgotten. How many of you, when was the last time you thought about Jonathan Taylor Thomas, all right? I hate that guy. Because, you know, when I was a kid, he was at the height of his celebrity. Like, there was no bigger name. And all these girls wouldn't go on dates with me because they were holding out for Jonathan Taylor Thomas, right? And it's like, how many of you have even remembered him in the last 15 years? We're here and gone and forgotten. This is a sobering reality for us. This should hit close to home for us. This should be a sobering reality for many of us with kids, right? I've got four girls under the age of six. Pray for me, all right? And my oldest, Karis, I am already a third of the way through my time with her. By the time your kid gets to third grade, half of your time is gone. It's a sobering reality. It breaks my heart when I think about that. This should be a sobering reality for many of us with our parents. You know, I Googled this today. Don't get mad at me, this is Google. They say that the average person now lives to 79 years old in the US. My dad, Eric Duvick, He's 65, year old, 65 years old. He lives in Sandwich, Illinois. Shout out to my people. Outside of Chicago. And so what that means, if I only see him twice a year, I've only got about 28 more times to get together with my dad. And that's even if the Lord allows him to live that long. 28 more times I get to sit down with him. 28 more conversations I get to have together with him. We can talk and laugh. 28 more times that I'm with him to hear more about his life. Our time is short. You guys feel this every time you go to a funeral for someone who's young or passes away tragically. God is calling us to see this. Our time is short. And maybe he's impressing on us as we listen to that, things that we ought to do. You know, maybe for us, God is inviting us to have more of a ministry of presence in our life. He's saying, don't get so focused on what's ahead that you miss the opportunities right in front of you. Or maybe he's teaching you, what does it look like for you to number your days? Some of you know how many days there are until you retire. Some of you know how many days there are until you have your next vacation. Some of you have a cute little app on your phone that tells you counting down the days until you get married. What would it look like for us to have that same level of awareness 
that our days here on earth are numbered. You know, one of my favorite stories, a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. You've got these kids who go to this school in one of the books, Proof Rock Prep, and over this gate that they have to walk into every single day is this Latin phrase that says, memento mori, which means, remember, you will die. Very uplifting kids book, all right? But it's a good reminder. It's like, man, what would it look like if we had that reality in front of us? How would that impact the way that we live our lives today? What's it look like for you and your family to embrace this? Maybe it's going to fiddle and fig and get an acute remember you will die sign that you can hang up in your house. <laughs> or maybe it's a little less on the nose. John Piper, who's one of my influences, was a pastor. He said growing up in his house, his parents had a sign that said, only one, wi- only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And to have some reality that we're reminded of, man, our time is short. We gotta focus on what's important. We need to be able to have that kind of thought in our lives together with one another. And here's what this tells us. James is trying to wake us up to this reality. You don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. You are only here for a short time. Listen, we have nothing to be arrogant about, guys. Like, that doesn't fill you with swagger. No one's walking around saying, I'm ignorant and I'm only gonna be here like a second. None of us are saying that. And so what do we do with these realities? I think there's three options. The first option is we can, we can come face to face with this and we can just still cling to our hubris and arrogance. We can continue to, to operate the way that we've always been operating. But here's what we know is that we harden ourselves when we do that. And when we harden ourselves, we are more likely to break. That's not a good option. The second option is we can come face to face with these realities and we can just become so overwhelmed by all the little things that can happen to us in life. And that's a great way to end up in a padded cell, all right? That's not helpful. And so here's the third option that James is inviting us to. Instead of those things, we can begin to cultivate humility instead of hubris. We can approach our life with humility, begin planning with humility. It's holding everything that we have with open hands and saying, God, you know what, if you wanna change this, if you wanna do something different than what I originally planned, that's okay. I'm gonna trust you with it. I'm gonna walk with you because I'm gonna be humble. And so we put our plans in the, the hands of a sovereign ruler when we are not, someone who is not limited when we are, someone who is eternal when we are temporal, someone who is sovereign and in control when we are not. And when you do that, when you instill this posture of humility rather than hubris, you become the person who says things like this, what we see in verse 15. You become like the person who says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's all up to God and you trust him with that. Now is James saying that I have to be the annoying over spiritual person who attaches that phrase to everything that I say? Babe, I'm gonna go to the bathroom if the Lord wills. We were in the drive-thru at Taco Bell. Yeah, I'll have a beefy five-layer burrito and a medium Baja Blast, if the Lord wills. <laughs> That's not what he's saying, all right? Listen, this phrase is not a mantra that we repeat over and over. It's a mindset that we have where we see God in and over all of our circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Yeah. 
It's not a cliche that we attach to everything we say. It's a conviction where we say, I need the grace of God in every area of my life. And so we need this reality. And it affects the way that we plan. It affects how we plan. But even more than that, James is telling us to take one step. Instead of saying, hey, this is the the heart in which you plan, it needs to affect the content of our plans as well. Because we need to submit what we are doing to the plans and commands of a sovereign God. And so, so many of us, man, our life choices are designed about, you know, around our will rather than God's will. James is saying we need to submit our plans to the will of God. And here's what that looks like. The will of God, you know, we can unpack that a lot, but what he's saying right here, the most basic understanding about the will of God for for this is the will of God is what he has commanded you and I to do. And we are to follow and obey that, which leads us to the second point. Genuine faith cultivates obedience, not omission. Genuine faith cultivates obedience, not omission. Look with me in verse 17, it says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. All sin can be boiled down into two categories. So there are sins of commission, these are sins that we commit. And we're working a lot on that with that in the Duvik household right now, we're telling our girls, hey, these are the good things, or these are things you are not supposed to do that you like doing, okay? So we're telling them things like, hey, don't hit your sister in the face, all right? Don't throw your food on the ground. Don't lie to mom and dad. Those things we're not supposed to do that we do, those are sins of commission. But there's a second set called sins of omission. These are the things that we ought to do that we don't do, okay? And you guys know, we we do this a lot in our lives. You know, we know we're supposed to eat vegetables, but cheese dip, all right? We know we're supposed to save money, but I found this really cute thing on sale. We know we should be getting more sleep, but TikTok, right? And so those those are neutral ones, but there is a moral category where when we don't do those things, it is sin. And what we see here is that sometimes we have a certain nose blindness to these kinds of sins. We don't readily recognize it because for us, so many of the times that we think about sin in our life, it's those sins of commission. We get fixated on these bad things we know we shouldn't be doing, but we do anyway, when we don't often give thoughts to these sins of omission. And here's what James is saying. He says, you may not see it, but your life is filled with it. And he's saying, oftentimes you can see that in the way that you plan. I can look at your calendar and I can see these sins of omission. Because some of you, man, you have not prioritized gathering with God's people. And that's reflected in frankly, just lack of attendance here on weekends or with community at Two Cities Church. Some of you, you are not prioritizing making time with God in his word and prayer. And it gets crowded out by so many other things on your calendar. Some of you are not prioritizing the identity that you have in Christ as a servant. And so you are not intentionally finding ways to serve God's people or the world around you. Some of you are are disregarding the command that God has given you to be the spiritual leader of your family, and you are not making an effort to disciple your kids. Maybe you're outsourcing that to somebody else and you're not owning that personally. Some of you, you are more marked by the the great omission rather than the great commission and the great commandment because you have not made any margin in your life, in your calendar, in your budget, in your home 
to do the mission and mercy that God has called you to. We have completely forgotten these things. You know, by the time we try to add God's stuff into our calendars, we're out of room. Many of us, our agendas look completely atheist. Let me ask you a question. If someone was to look at your calendar, would they know that you were genuinely a Christian? And I'm not just talking about a good Southern Christian who comes to church 2.2 times a month. Would they see that you are someone who is relentlessly pursuing obedience to the will of God in every area of your life? Because if you can't really justify that to other people, man, your life is filled with sins of omission. And here's what James is saying. He's like, do not be content with that because your sins of omission are a great deal to God. God cares just as much about our sins of omission as he does about our sins of commission. And at some point in our life, people get this. Like I said, often we can get so fixated on our sins of commission, the things that we know we shouldn't be doing, but we are anyway. But later in life, you start seeing more people being grieved over their sins of omission. Think about a person on their deathbed. What are they talking about? It's all the good things they knew they should have been doing, but they didn't do. I should have spent more time with my kids. I wish I would have done more for Christ. I've wasted my life. It's gonna hit home for us at some point. And so what does it look like for us not to be that kind of church? What's it look like for us to be the kind of church that cultivates obedience rather than omission? Well, here's what we need to do. The number one thing that we need to do is we need to grow in our understanding of the right thing to do. We need to grow in our understanding. What is the right thing that God wants us to do? And James is saying, listen, there is clearly right and wrong. As a church, we don't agree with culture that right and wrong are something that is subjective or a question mark. We know that there is clearly a right and wrong. We can acknowledge that and we can stand on that. And so where do we find those right things to do? Well, God clearly tells us in scripture. God clearly tells us in scripture. He speaks to us through his word when we spend time with him. And so we need to intentionally go to the word of God to see what his will is for our life, what the commands are that he's telling us to do so that we are not living sins of omission. And listen, you don't have to dig very deep to figure out what those things are. It's gonna be very apparent as you're looking for those things. And if it's in God's word, here's, here's the principle. If it's in God's word, you don't need to pray about it, okay? If you are wondering whether or not you should share the gospel with your neighbor, you don't need to pray about it. If you are wondering whether or not you should invest in community in the lives of believers, you don't need to pray about it. If you're wondering if you should be generous with your time, your talent, your treasure, you don't need to pray about it. If you're wondering whether or not you should watch Lord of the Rings, you don't need to pray about it, okay? And listen, so we need to go to the word of God for a word from God because that's what we need to be able to avoid these sins of omission. We need to know about them and understand them. And so we also know what these things are because God tells us through his spirit as we walk with him. If you are a Christian, you have God living inside you. We have the Holy Spirit. And what we know from the book of John is Jesus tells us that the God inside of us is better than the God beside us because we can walk around all of our life praying constantly in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, all throughout the day, he is going to impress on you the things that he wants you to do. You're gonna see that constantly in your life. 
Here's another principle that's helpful. God is never going to speak to you in contradiction to his word, okay? And so if you're having a conversation with someone and you get really riled up and you're like, I wanna slap this person, All right? That's not the Holy Spirit. We don't see that in his word. That's probably your burrito talking, okay? But when you sit and you have a conversation with someone, you have this impression, it's like, I need to share the hope of the gospel with this person. That is the Holy Spirit because we see that in his word. And, but here's what James says, and this is serious. Here's what James says. If in that moment, the spirit is impressing on you this thing that you know you ought to do and you don't do it, it's sin. Seriously, it's sin. And so we need to, in that moment, be obedient to what God is impressing on each of us. And so first of all, we cultivate our obedience by knowing what is right through God's word and through his Holy Spirit But here's the next thing we need to do to cultivate obedience is we need to repent of all of our our excuses. Man, some of you, most of us, we already know the right thing to do. The reason you are not doing it is because you are coming up with all of these excuses for not doing it. And as I thought about this week, you know, I just, I thought I'd boil it down to three things that probably hit all of us in some way. What are some of the excuses that we say? Well, number one, we say, we have more time. I'll do it tomorrow. I don't need to do it today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. But we already know from early in this passage, that's not true. We can't rest on that. That's not a good excuse. The second excuse that we have is, I just don't want to do it. And if you're honest, we all do that, don't we? Even us pastors, we struggle with this. For years, I knew God was telling me to take a Sabbath. I studied it in seminary. I knew all about it. I could tell you about it, but for me, I was just like, I'm not doing that. For the longest time, I was like, I don't, God, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not doing that. We all do that in different ways. I think the third reason that we make excuses not to do this is, frankly, we just don't trust God. We trust God for our eternal salvation, but when it comes to this command that he tells us, it's like, I don't trust you. We think that some way when we're following the will of God that it's robbing us, Right? We know it's good for us, like eating vegetables, but we just don't like to do it. We think that following the will of God somehow is a recipe for misery. But what we know is the opposite is true. It's disobeying the will of God that leads to misery in our lives. And so we need to be reminded, men, about the goodness of God's will. The Apostle Paul does this in Romans chapter 12, verse two. Look at this with me, it says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He said, you have to stop believing this lie. That by testing, you may able to be, by testing, you may be able to discern what is the will of God. And here's how he describes the will of God. What is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. You see, the enemy wants us to believe that following the will of God is going to rob us. But what we know to be true is that following the will of God is what satisfies us. It brings us freedom, it brings us life. And so this is an invitation from God to trust in him. So we need to know what is the right thing to do. We need to stop making excuses and begin fighting for the right thing. We fight for what is true. We believe, we fight to believe that God's will is good for us. As we come to a close, you know, this challenge that we have in James 4, it reminds me of another passage of scripture. It's about a young man called the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And in Mark 10, it tells the story about this young man who comes to Jesus. He says, teacher, 
tell me what I need to do to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus, he gives them a list of these sins of commission. He's like, hey, don't do these things. And the young man's like, awesome. I haven't done those things since I was a young kid. I've got that whole thing down. But Jesus is about to shine a light on an area of his life of omission that he's not looking at. But here's what it says. Before he does that, it says Jesus looks at him with love. Jesus isn't pointing these things out to him or to us because he's angry with us. He's not mad at us. He's not trying to be a dictator over our life. Jesus shines a light on the sins of omission in our life because he knows there's a better way. He has something better for us. And so Jesus looks at him in love and says to him, I want you to sell all that you have, give to the poor, and follow me. Find your treasure in heaven with the Lord. He shined a light on an area of omission in this man's life. And it says that he walked away sad because he had great wealth. I think that story of that young man is a, a good picture of many of our lives. Some of you have had God shine a light on an area of omission in your life and you didn't like what he had to say and so you've been walking away. Some of you, God has shown this light on your life and you've been so living for your will that you're disregarding any will that he's trying to tell you for your life. Some of us are walking away from God and we don't even know it because we have essentially forgotten him. What's God shining a spotlight on in your life today? I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, that fills me with conviction. And that's what the book of James does, is it constantly points out our shortcomings over and over and over again. It can feel very weighty. But the reason James does that, the reason why he gives you that bad news is because he wants to point us back to the good news that you and I need. And what is that good news? And the good news you need to hear today is that God planned your salvation. When we were making our plans completely without God, he was planning your salvation before time even began. He never once forgot about you. And when you were running away from the will of God, Jesus Christ submitted to it humbly all his life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And God's will for him was to go to the cross and take the judgment that we deserved. And he showed us humility on that cross, did he not? Not an ounce of hubris was in him. He went on that cross and he took the death that we deserve so that we could have life. And do you know why he did that? He did that so every time we look at the cross, we would never once doubt his love for us. When we look at that cross, we never have to wonder if God has our best interest in mind, really. We look at that cross and we know God's love. We know his goodness. We see that his will, even though it might look different from ours, is for our good. The cross changes everything. It flattens our hubris and it calls us to obedience in him. So how is God calling you to respond to that cross today? What is the spotlight he's shining on your life today? What is the good thing that you know you should be doing, but you're not? Maybe for some of you, that's something big that you've been putting off for such a long time. Maybe for you, it's, some of you, it's just a small step that's gonna lead to even greater obedience. Maybe for some of you, it's finally surrendering your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time. For some of you, maybe it's 
finally inviting God into that thing that you've been doing for so long without him. He's calling you to consider, man, what would it look like to view your free time differently in light of who God is and all that he's called you to? For some of you, it's thinking about, man, how do I view my time, my talent, and my treasure differently because of his commands and his will for me? For some of you, maybe he's inviting you to think and plan differently about your retirement in light of what God has called you to. Maybe for some of you, what you need to think about today is, what have you been saying, tomorrow I will? What are those tomorrow I wills in your life? Tomorrow I will start serving. Tomorrow I'll start giving. Tomorrow I'll tell that person I love them. Tomorrow I will pursue that person. Tomorrow I will ask for forgiveness. Tomorrow I will share the hope of the gospel with this person. Remember, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. The Lord is calling you, do not put off the good thing till tomorrow that you need to do today. What is that thing in your life? Whatever it is that God is calling you to today, church, let us humbly submit in obedience today. Let's pray. Father, this is a weighty reality that we come face to face with today. I need to be the first to repent. God, in so many ways, I have not been humble. I have not been obedient. I know all of us can say that, Lord. And so right here and right now, we want to repent of those things. And we pray that because of the cross, man, we can trust in you. God, we can and just earnestly become more humble people. That we would seek to live lives of obedience rather than just being okay with omission. Father, would you change us? God, those things that you've placed on our heart, God, would we not push that off anymore? But would you call us to repent and believe and obey today? God, as we do that, we pray that you would be glorified. God, it's not our, our strength that does this, but it's you opening our eyes and helping us move forward in this way. God, we pray that you would transform and change every person here, and that through that, you would draw more and more people to yourself, Lord, by the power of that reality. We ask these in Jesus Christ's name.